Hey folks, a word before we get started. I am humbled every week by you, our Energy Gang listeners, the tens of thousands of you. I love your feedback on things you think we're getting wrong or right. I love your reaction to each of our personalities. And most importantly, I love hearing how this show helps you, how it helps you in a job interview, a business meeting, in your advocacy, whatever. If that's the case for you, can you do us a favor and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and maybe even write a review? And while you're at it, send a link to a friend or colleague who's passionate about energy, even if you think they disagree with us, especially if you think they disagree with us. Let's break out of our echo chambers and spread the word about the trends shaping the energy industry. You see, the more people we push to subscribe and join the gang, particularly on the Apple ecosystem, the more we climb up the rankings and get the world to hear about the extraordinary energy transition underway. So thanks for helping us out. It means a lot. And while you're there, subscribe to our other podcast, The Interchange. On that show, we conduct long-form interviews with some of the brightest minds on the cutting edge of energy. Our most recent interviews have gotten a lot of response. One is a conversation I had on tribalism with Alex Trembeth of the Breakthrough Institute. We cover a lot of ground there. And the other is on the path uh, to solar's global dominance between Shale Khan and Varun Sivaram, two of the brightest minds in solar. That's The Interchange. With me and my co-host, Shale Khan, you can get that anywhere you get podcasts. Thank you so much. And thank you to our sponsor. This show would not be possible without C-Power Energy Management. I know many of you are in the building sector or energy management space, and you should know about what C-Power can do for you. C-Power provides demand-side energy management solutions that help keep you green and help you earn revenue in the process. C-Power is a leading national provider of demand response curtailment programs that pay you for shedding load when the grid is stressed. C-Power can also help organizations in multiple open energy markets develop a custom strategy designed to achieve your energy goals and monetize your energy assets nationwide. C-Power is here to help you, to help you save on energy costs, earn revenue by leveraging your organization's existing energy resources, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid. They do so much. And you can find out more about C-Power's demand-side energy management solutions at cpowerenergymanagement.com. Now on to the show. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. If storage is the Swiss army knife of the electric grid, then U.S. energy regulators are breaking out their tool belts. Last week brought a historic ruling at FERC. Commissioners told regional grid operators to create rules valuing the grid services of energy storage. Will it screw natural gas peakers? Or maybe cut, saw, file, prune, hook, or crimp them? Then, an infrastructure redux. Trump wants to supercharge the country by building stuff. The White House's infrastructure plan is out, and when it comes to energy, they're making pipelines a priority and largely bypassing the clean stuff. In the meantime, Trump's wall still hasn't been built, so we're heading down to Mexico for our final segment. GTM was there for our solar summit last week, and we'll share some insight into the forces behind one of the cheapest solar markets in the world. Catherine Hamilton is with us today. Yesterday was her birthday. You made it through another year, Catherine. How does it feel now that you're 30 years old? 
<laughs> it's great. And yesterday was a very unusual 80 degrees. My husband said to me, should I be having an existential crisis about climate change? And I said, no, because I've been cold forever and one day of warmth and on my birthday will be totally fine. Are, are you jaded about everything now that you're, you're past your third decade? <laughs> yeah, I hear that your brain sort of stops when you're 30. So we're all kind of frozen in time a little bit. Great. I'm, are you telling me I'm peaking? That voice you heard is Julia Piper, always with original thoughts. Julia is our very capable and astute senior editor. She's out in Los Angeles. Julia, hello. Hi, it's chilly out here. What did you guys do with our warm weather? Julia is filling in for Jigger while he's out on vacation. I didn't actually ask where he went off to, so maybe he's not even on vacation. For all I know, he's lying and he just got sick of us. But anyway, we're glad to have you here, Julia. We're going to talk about some really important subjects, the first one being energy storage. It's a pretty big moment for energy storage in America right now. I think it's fair to argue it's one of the biggest moments for the technology. That is because FERC, the federal energy regulatory body, issued a powerful decree to all the wholesale markets in the land, find a way to value storage, put it on an even playing field with other technologies. Um, as storage, and really I'm, we're mostly referring to batteries here, keeps showing very impressive cost and performance improvements, the market constructs are not catching up. Uh, PJM and California are the exception, of course, but progress is really lumpy in this country. And now all of a sudden, everyone's saying, whoa, we've got a technology on our hands that we may not be able to control, or we may be stymieing because we just don't even know how to deal with it. So so now federal regulators are saying, deal with it, figure out a way, come back with us with some rules and um, put them in place. So let's take the opportunity to take stock of how markets treat storage and why FERC's decision is a big deal. Catherine, what's FERC actually saying to market operators? Yeah, and this is with a full 5-0 endorsement by all commissioners. And they all come from very different perspectives, but they agreed that the rules are broken and they needed they need the ISOs, the RTOs to fix those rules. So they've really set up a framework for in for the energy storage industry. This is just if you all want to look it up, order 841. And they've really said you need use system operators to create participation models for greater than or equal to 100 kW systems on the grid through a stakeholder process to make sure that you're able to compensate characteristics and attributes that energy storage can provide, but it, that it is not getting compensated for. And it should be technology neutral. The whole point of competitive markets is that you create a service that is needed and whomever can provide that service should be able to participate. And right now, storage just doesn't fit into any category. It does so many different things. And the the tariffs right now are structured so that you have to fit into very specific categories and you don't get you only get paid for very specific services. And this is really going to force the ISIS to go back and rethink that and figure out what is going to be the right participation model and how are we going to really open up the markets. And this is this is like deep tariff issues. This is going to be a very complicated process, but FERC has really teed it up. Well, let's talk about that complicated process. Like what happens next? It's going to take uh, many years. Uh, it could vary depending on the regional market. Like what what actually has to happen now to implement this? So now the ISOs go back and they start a stakeholder process. They have nine months to submit their plan. Now their plan could say, here's our timeline. So the plan could could definitely push it out. You know, we're not going to implement for another year. And then they still have to go through FERC approvals and comment periods from stakeholders. But the key right now is that the ISOs go back and start 
a process internally, and that means all the stakeholders are at the table, all the participants in those markets have to be seated at the table to come up with what do we have to do to change all the handbooks, all the tariffs, and where are the places where storage has barriers or these characteristics have barriers and how do we change those? And what is really important here is the stakeholder process. So the people who are stakeholders are those who participate in those markets. And often those are the incumbent generators. There aren't very many people, for example, I've been very involved in DR demand response and the distributed energy resource processes, and there just aren't that many participants. So you, we have to gather as many people as possible as many allies as possible to participate in those processes and become part of those markets so that it can be done in a way that's very thoughtful and takes everybody's um, everybody's needs and characteristics into consideration. I'm struck by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission doing its job, right? Actually taking into consideration this fast-moving technology and saying, Okay, we need to uh, we need to do our jobs and stay out ahead of technology, or at least keep with it. And um, this is this is a really positive sign that FERC is is doing its job at a time when, as Amy Harder described it in a previous interview, we come to expect the unexpected. You know, we kind of assume that a lot of agencies in Washington are not going to do their jobs properly, and this is yet another case where regulators are taking a careful look at something that is going to have an explosive impact on markets. With that said, though, uh, this is, you know, storage specific. And FERC is now saying, hey, let's open up another docket to take a look at aggregating distributed energy resources. So that is not part of this plan. But also interesting that they're, they're now thinking about taking this more holistic look at what a, a, a variety of distributed resources, including storage could do in wholesale markets aggregated together. They also have that uh, proceeding on grid resilience that they opened in the wake of the DOE NOPER getting rejected. And it was interesting to see uh, Commissioner Richard Glick and actually uh, Powelson both note how this energy storage ruling um, enhances grid reliability and resilience, the very words that we heard you know, Secretary Perry mention in his NOPER. Uh, so they seem to be playing with the same set of language in making this determination on energy storage. And then, of course, we'll see what happens in that other proceeding on grid resilience that's going to holistically examine the resilience of the bulk power system. So that will be an interesting one. Comments are due in the next, I think, 60 days after the announcement, which came on January 8th. Yeah. So on the the timeline is interesting because the resilience responses are due March 9th, as you mentioned, and then the replies to those comments are due April 9th. And then there is a distributed energy resource technical conference that will be on April 10th and 11th. And that's when they're going to go into, remember, it was the storage slash DER NOPER that was out there, and they only did a rulemaking on storage. So they've deferred D- distributed energy resources. There just wasn't enough of discovery and a record built to really make do a rule making on that. I think there's still a lot of state policy issues, state versus wholesale market tension that needs to be resolved. I think it is absolutely solvable. We just need more time to do it. So that technical conference happens in April, but all of these kind of build on each other, as you say, and I think even on the distributed energy resource side, we will also see a lot of resilience built into those solutions. Okay, so this is this is wonky as heck. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that needs to happen over the coming months and, and years. But I'm really interested in the end goal. And the end goal to me feels like 
doomsday for peaker plants, for natural gas peaker plants. Because if you look at the modeling of storage costs done by GTM Research and other leading research outfits, it's going to be very hard for new new peakers to compete in the coming years. I mean, it's already in select locations kind of hard for them to compete with lithium-ion batteries, which are you know becoming more cost competitive at an eight or eight hour or longer duration. So um, what we have is two years from now or whatever, you know, whenever the time frame is a set of rules and markets that put storage on an even playing field and costs that look extraordinarily good and make it very difficult for peakers to compete. I think, um, you know, the clock is ticking a little bit closer to midnight on the doomsday clock for gas peaker plants. What do you all think about that? Remember, the goal at FERC is just and reasonable rates. So what they're looking at is making sure that the markets are competitive and that that they continue to move those forward and that competition is able to be healthy. And remember, all of this also has to do with keeping prices low for consumers because consumers benefit in competitive markets. And as long as you have that, uneconomic plants will not be able to survive. Whatever does survive, it's going to be the most economic. And we can kind of see where that's going. I thought it was interesting on the sort of significance of this decision to see uh, Joel Eisen, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School, uh, point out how this energy storage um, order is really the game changer for the electric grid that uh, we saw around the early uh, regulations around the internet. He made this interesting comparison talking about creating a level playing field for storage and other power plants because, you know, the wholesale markets weren't really set up to handle battery storage that sometimes sells and sometimes buys power. Uh, so it really required a paradigm shift in uh, the sale of electricity. And FERC now has opened that up, um, which is similar, he said, to what happened in the 60s and 70s when uh, folks started showing up with the t- on the telephone network with computers and they used the network but weren't offering the same thing. Uh, so the FCC had these computer inquiries, they were called, certain decisions that basically helped also level the playing field there. Uh, not a perfect comparison, but uh, he basically said, in 20 years, we may look back on the FERC storage order uh, on, on storage and actually also demand response and see them as watershed moments in the way uh, the development of a two-way interactive participatory electric grid. I thought that was an interesting comparison. Yeah, and I don't think we can understate the importance of having a fully staffed FERC. So we have five commissioners. They all come at this with a slightly different perspective, but that actually makes for better outcomes and fuller decision. So I think that is all really important. And I've, I've met with all of them multiple times, um, finally got in to see the chair who is a very thoughtful person and is looking for solutions. They want to make sure that they uphold competitive markets and want to make sure that they get to a very thoughtful conclusion. Yeah, it sounds like there's still some little details to be worked out. Um, the Energy Storage Association's Jason Berwin was pointing to uh, certain minimum runtime requirements that can make it difficult for multiple use storage. Um, there's also, uh, FERC also allows RTOs to offer alternatives to direct metering of energy storage uh, to account for wholesale versus resale, uh, retail transactions. And he said that this is basically how... Um, RTOs will either enable distributed storage or burden it with high transaction costs. So getting into the weeds here, but it sounds like there's still some details to be worked out that will affect the rollout of storage at the end of the day. 
Yeah, metering and telemetry are huge expenses for anybody who's operating behind the meter. So those are those are definitely issues that gonna are gonna have to be worked out. And I think through the DER technical conference, we're gonna start to get to some of that, but those are ongoing processes. And remember, every single ISO is really different. So PJM has very different rules and processes than MISO, even different stakeholder processes. SPP is so new to this, so theirs are really different. And so there are going to be different stakeholder processes to have to work through and different handbooks. It's just, it is, uh, it's going to require a lot of attention. Don't go anywhere, folks, because right here in the show is where we talk about a really cool company briefly, a company that makes this podcast possible for your listening pleasure, Sea Power Energy Management. Now, if you're a commercial real estate energy manager, and I know there are some of you out there, because I do talk to a lot of building pros who listen to this podcast, you know your job is part art, part science. Rapid changes in all kinds of technology have pushed the boundaries of the science part of that equation beyond what people could have imagined just 15 years ago. Heck, just five years ago. Schedule electricity use curtailment in response to market prices right from your smartphone? Sure, why not? That's the easy part. The hard part is the art of demand-side energy management. Taking in the whole expanded palette of technological advancements, always evolving energy markets, your customers' specific needs and their energy-savvy expectations, and making it all work together is, well, a real art. That's why commercial real estate energy professionals turn to C-Power Energy Management. C-Power's highly qualified and experienced teams work with you to develop a C-Powered strategy. It's the perfect mix of engineering, analysis, market intelligence, and performance solutions to help you turn your energy assets into savings and earnings, all while operating more efficiently. Now, that is a way to make your job better and to make your clients happy. You're happy, they're happy, the environment's happy, and most importantly, your tenants are happy. You're doing your job right. At CPower, they bring the science and the art of energy management to the table. Their demand-side energy management solutions serve customers operating commercial properties in all of the nation's open energy markets. Find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. Okay, let's move on. Let's be real, folks. America's infrastructure sucks. Our roads, trains, bridges, water, and electric systems, they're aging. They're aging fast. And this is not my opinion. Once again, the American Society of Civil Engineers is rating this country's infrastructure a D plus. That was the 2017 report card. They've um, they've they've had that rating for many years now. So the call in Washington, led by Trump, for more infrastructure, it's getting a lot of attention, and it's getting a lot of attention from from folks in energy, you know, both fossils and renewables, who are trying to convince the administration that they're the best candidates for boosting investment. We, we now have an infrastructure plan from the White House, and unsurprisingly, it, it does virtually nothing to address the fastest growing renewable energy industries or, you know, talking about climate change and infrastructure resilience. Instead, it focuses mostly on pipelines and how to get fossil infrastructure on public lands. It does nothing to expand, um, you know, infrastructure related tax breaks to uh, you know, the more cutting edge clean tech industries. So let's take some time to talk about what is or is not in the plan. And more importantly, how will this get paid for? Um, and what are the political prospects? Uh, Julia, what caught your eye about the infrastructure plan related to energy? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I think the fact that there wasn't much in there for clean energy and sort of the distribution and transmission projects that support uh, the proliferation of clean energy. Uh, there wasn't anything on climate resilience that people 
you know, thought should really be in there. Um, and then, you know, as you mentioned, it, it's unclear how this would get paid for. Um, it's being called a $1.5 trillion plan, but really it's $200 billion of federal money hoping to catalyze that additional uh, additional amount. Um, Democrats put out their own proposal around the same time that would have had five times the amount of federal funding. Um, and it just comes at an awkward time. We have budget issues on Capitol Hill. Um, obviously, the tax plan was just approved. Trump did not offer um, a way to pay for the infrastructure proposal. So he really just sort of kicked it over to over to Congress. And both sides, uh, both political parties have really had some pushback on this plan. Um, Democrats obviously want to spend more. Republicans are hesitant to spend any more and uh, increase the deficit further. Um, I was one uh, Republican friend told me, though, that uh, the Democrats are going to block this no matter what, even though they say they want to act on infrastructure because we can't give uh, they can't give Trump another win after having tax reform. Not totally sure how uh, truthful that is. It seems like the Republicans are also having some pushback on this proposal um, to go into some of the more details. Um, it's worth noting half the federal money, 100 billion would be given out to local uh, local governments, $20 billion would go toward projects of national significance. Energy projects might be able to play in there, but not totally clear. Another $50 billion is earmarked for rural block grants. Uh, the rest of the money would go to other infrastructure-related undertakings, uh, including existing loan programs. Um, uh, Trump also proposed privatizing certain federally owned uh, assets like the uh, Bonneville Power Authorities, transmission assets, Tennessee Valley Authorities, transmission assets, as well as the Reagan and Dulles airports. Um, you mentioned that there's widened eligibility for private activity bonds. Um, there, some clean energy advocates have pointed out this could increase energy efficiency through investments in the grid. Um, renewables do not qualify, though. Um uh, then there was uh, the kind of uh, permitting from 10 years, five to 10 years for certain projects down to two years. Uh, sounds like wind is generally okay with that move because they've had some problems permitting transmission projects. Uh, but others have pointed out this would erode environmental protections for various infrastructure projects and pipelines are a major concern there. That was a great summary, Julia. So I had a meeting last week with Alex Hergut, who's the Associate Director of Infrastructure for the Council on Environmental Quality, which is the White House entity that developed this proposal. And he really did focus on bridges, roads, water, sewer systems, um, and removing, as they say, making common sense permitting changes, which um, I believe you can translate that into really removing uh, barriers without consideration probably of environmental issues like the Endangered Species Act. So I think there there are some permitting um, barriers that could be removed, but there would potentially be pushback because of environmental issues. Um, but the, he did not mention the grid at all. He didn't even mention rural broadband, although I do think that is a place where we could really see something happen. These other areas like sewers, you're not going to get private funding of these. These are civil works projects, these, civic works projects. These are not investments. What Where you could really see even investment, I think broadband would be one of those areas. I think grid modernization could be one of those areas, but that is not in the president's proposal at all. And and this is not, you know, if you think this is going to be like the stimulus bill, which was 50-50, you know, the government gives you 50%, if you can raise 50%, of course, the levels here, as Julia mentioned, are lower, it's 20%. 
that's not what this is going to happen. And I do not think Congress on either side of the aisle has the appetite to to spend more money. They just spent up, you know, upwards of $2 trillion on a tax break. And I just, whether or not the Democrats put their feet down, guess what? The Democrats aren't in charge. This is going to have to be run by the Republicans. Like, I don't see if they're going to have an appetite at all to spend more money. That said, you could do some things. And you, you've seen Cantwell and Heinrich introduce legislation that would look at energy efficiency and smart grid. And you can call that infrastructure. That really is what that is. So I think we could do some tweaks around the edges, hopefully maybe get more transmission projects done. I just don't think that the president's plan necessarily tees that up. At the same time, if we do get something done, he could probably claim a win. Yeah, um, I'm trying to wrap my head around the the funding mechanism here. So, yeah, in theory, it'd be great to get all this private investment. Like, why have the government do it when you could have private actors finance um, infrastructure projects? The you know, the most of the analysis I've seen, though, seems to imply that like a lot of the spending and um, management of projects gets forced down to states that are already cash strapped. There's just not a clear way, like a clear mechanism for states to work with private actors to develop infrastructure projects. And I, I find myself a little confused as to how this model works. Um, and I suspect maybe there are probably others out there as well. Do, do you have any more clarity on why this approach was taken and what the limitations are? I can't see JP Morgan saying we'll build a bunch of box culverts. Like that's not something that they would invest in, I don't imagine. And you're totally right that local and state governments are not flush enough to pony up, you know, 80% if they and then if they can leverage some private equity, that would be great, but 80% for these major projects. These to me feel like real federal projects that if we could put some money into and get them done, that would be the way, the way we would do it. Interestingly, I am now an investor in J.P. Morgan's box, box culvert business. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to boom. Yeah, I'm always confused by the line in empowering local and state governments versus like, does it really just pass the buck onto them and the political risk? Like they have to raise local taxes and state taxes now to pay for these plans. It doesn't seem super empowering to me if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, so the control would be great, but trying to find the pay for is no fun. Um, and even the federal side, trying to find that $200 billion. Uh, as I mentioned, Trump did not offer a way to pay for that, which really shifts the discussion over to spending cuts, which is going to come up in general as we look at how the tax plan rolls out and how the government pays for everything. Um, and so that's going to be a total gridlock on Capitol Hill is finding pay for for everything right now. And where is that money going to come from? Well, part of it's going to come from the Department of Energy. And we saw recently under the um, proposed Trump budget, they slashed um, EERE funding by I think 75%. Now, a lot of that money was pushed over to the Office of Fossil Energy and Office of Nuclear. So, you know, it may not net out a lot of money um, to pay for to pay for uh, this infrastructure bill. But, you know, that is one place where you could imagine the administration targeting in order to get money to pay for this. They also proposed to cut the Department of Transportation's budget by 19%, including axing grant programs for transit and other competitive projects proposed by local governments. So, it seems to be a little at odds with the broader idea of trying to boost infrastructure spending while proposing to cut the DOT's budget. 
I think it's also important to note that in anytime you talk about infrastructure, you got to talk about the gas tax because that's traditionally how we've paid for for infrastructure. And right now, the gas tax as, is at 18 cents per gallon, uh, has not been raised since 1993, and it's not in, adjusted to inflation. Um, I think the uh, the Chamber of Commerce has actually proposed raising this. Trump has said he's open to it. Um, they haven't officially come out on that. Um, but it is a proposal out there. Uh, and it's important to discuss because the budget office says that um, by 2021, the highway trust fund could literally be out of money, be insufficient to meet the obligations. So to the, to the idea of bipartisan solutions, we've had people come out proposing a vehicle's miles travel tax, which would actually make sure that electric vehicles and hybrids and more efficient cars are paying their fair share for infrastructure into the highways trust fund. I remember covering in 2012 Congressman Blumenauer's proposal on that. Uh, but it was funny, it still got pushed back. You have a Democratic uh, Democrat proposing a VMT, which would you know, affect clean energy vehicles, but he did it as sort of this bipartisan way of coming up with a sustainable long-term solution. And that got, that got pushed back. So the gas tax doesn't seem to be going anywhere right now, even though it seems like everyone agrees it needs to be raised. Um, and then you have other newer solutions like vehicles, mal- vehicle mile traveled tax um, that are out there, um, but we'll see if they get any pickup. Probably not. Yeah. So I do think we need to figure out how to pay for the roads, but I'll tell you who gets hit with a gas tax. It's people in rural communities who drive more. So those are all, a lot of those areas are red states. So I would not say that this is limited to democratic opposition. These are, this is not a winning topic for Republicans. If you say, if the, if the narrative is we just gave a big tax cut to corporations, but we're going to raise your cost of driving, that's not going to help folks in rural communities. Who knew infrastructure could be so complicated? Who knew? While both of those other stories broke last week, I was in Mexico. Luckily, I barely missed that earthquake that came through. I got a nice text from Catherine following up asking me if everything was okay. I didn't get one from my parents, so... Thanks, Catherine, for (laughs) watching over me. Happy to be your mom for a day. (laughs) Another tremor is coming through Mexico, though, um, but it's not coming from underneath the earth. It's coming from the sky in the form of photons. That country, Mexico, is emerging as one of the hottest solar markets in the world, and if current trends persist, GTM research forecasts it could install 20 cumulative gigawatts by 2022, and that could represent 20% of total capacity in the country by then. It's a big deal. Yeah, so one of the things I was wondering about is that there have upcoming elections. And I'm I'm just curious how you think those elections might influence what has been a really strong policy on renewable energy. Everyone was asking about that. And I think that's the big unknown at this point. But what I did hear from government officials and developers alike is that we're past the point of no return. We're five years into the market transition. Um you know, Enrique Peña Nieto um, can't run for another term. He's been very supportive of the the market transition. But even if um, someone like a very left-leaning candidate like uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador comes in, uh, he claims vi- high support for renewable energy and the market transition. And I doubt that we're going to see any extreme swings in how this moves forward. So as far as solar and wind are concerned, you probably won't see any dramatic twists and turns. Really, the, the changes will be related to you know tariff design, 
um, the net metering cap, some of the more granular decision making that comes at the agency level that's probably outside of presidential politics. So, so generally, I found that there were there were tempered fears, but most people, including the folks actually implementing the market transition, don't don't believe there will be a significant impact. And Stephen, isn't aren't the auctions and bidding prices and that whole construct isn't it extremely complex? Do you think maybe it could be simplified? Oh God, I don't know the answer to whether it can be simplified. Um, there's definitely a lot of complexity in factoring in wholesale market prices at different nodes. Mexico has a lot of different nodal pricing structures, and they're pretty volatile. Um, you know, the the PPAs that we've seen factor in long term the the pricing that we've seen under the auctions factor in long term PPAs, and there's questions about whether off takers are willing to sign a ten or fifteen year PPA in Mexico. There's the clean energy certificate program that you know folks developers are factoring in the the, the these rec like certificates, um, the value of the clean energy of the clean energy generated, and that market is still really not come together yet. So. There are definitely a lot of factors that make these these prices more complicated. I don't know that I have the answer of whether it can be simplified, the auctions themselves. Um, you know, we've had a couple hiccups in the numbers, interpreting the numbers ourselves and how, how you model out the, you know, the different ways you get to a certain price. Um, but I, you know, I, I think we're probably looking at the same system that we have now. They're changing hands with how they run the auctions. But ultimately, you're looking at prices that factor in a lot of different market constructs in, in Mexico. And, and that's largely going to stay the same. Yeah, it was interesting to see the conversation around the clean energy certificates because those are factored into the PPA prices we saw, the really rock bottom ones. Um, but we don't know what those the value of those certificates yet. So a lot of people were pointing out that the record breaking prices that we're seeing aren't quite what they seem. So that'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, these low prices are pretty extraordinary though. And the certificates are one factor that people are eyeing to to see if these projects pencil out. I mean, the margins are extraordinarily thin, if not non-existent. And there was skepticism in the conference about whether projects will get built. You know, some people believe that developers are just going to build them and then flip them. Others think that there might be other revenue streams that solar can take advantage of, which are still kind of uncertain um, so, so I think everyone's trying to figure this out in real time to use a really tired analogy. They are building the car as they're driving it. And, um, but, but, but look, there's, there's a couple big factors that are bringing in these low prices as well that are just fundamentals in Mexico. And that is they have some of the best solar irradiance in the world, hands down. They just have one of the best solar resources and they have low labor costs as well. Um, and you have big developers, big experienced developers partnering with with local developers, and they know how to keep costs low. So right now, project costs, according to GTM Research, are coming in an average of $0.85 cents a watt. Um, that's some of the lowest lowest costs in the world. And, you know, we see like $0.65 cents a watt in India and so forth. But $0.85 cents a watt is really good. And those are those costs are headed downward. Of course, they depend on a lot of factors. They assume continued reductions in costs of equipment. They assume continued low labor costs, uh, as we talked about the certificates and other market constructs. They rely on low cost financing, you know, probably from government banks. Institutional lenders are 
still circling the market, unsure about currency risk and the coming election. So there's there's a little bit of hesitancy here. But whether like the cheapest product, the projects get built, the, the, the ultra low, you know, 1.9, 2 cent a kilowatt hour projects get built, there's still gonna be a lot of solar built. And it's going to be between, you know, 15 and 20 cumulative gigawatts over the next few years. So that could be anywhere from 14% to 20% of total capacity in Mexico. Pretty extraordinary. I thought it was interesting to see how distributed solar is also expected to uh, grow pretty significantly in Mexico. And GTM has the pricing by 2022 for residential PV around $1.30 per watt, which is far more competitive than the US where homeowners are paying uh, $2.90 per watt or almost $3, which reminds me of an article Andrew Birch a uh, former head of Sanjevity wrote for us about um, the red tape issue that we have here in the U.S. that's really keeping uh, distributed solar prices so much higher than virtually everywhere else in the world. Yeah, that's right. Um, Mexico also has a really generous feed-in, I mean, not feed-in tariff, a net metering um, policy. 500 kilowatts is the cap. So you can have huge CNI behind the meter systems that qualify for net metering and you know they've we've seen steadily rising tariff levels for commercial customers over the years uncertain whether those tariff levels will drop under a new presidency um you know <laughs> for political reasons but regardless we've seen a trend upward in rates and a very solid net metering cap which cumulatively has made behind the meter systems um more attractive and you know, quite frankly, corporate off-takers are becoming a big piece of the utility-scale market in Mexico as well. We're we're seeing in, independent power producers increasingly stream into Mexico and seek out single corporate players that want to invest in a lot of wind and solar. And so that trend that we see in the United States and other markets for these big tech and industrial companies is certainly coming to Mexico. So that that we expect to be a significant portion of the market. Last September, I attended and spoke at a conference in Mexico City. I was on a panel on energy storage. And with this type of growth in wind and solar, you would expect that energy storage would also um, potentially have market opportunities. But the way the rules currently define it is limits storage to being a generating resource. So because storage can be both load and generator and also a host of other things, T&D, deferral, um, there really hasn't been a market there yet. So I'm interested to see how those rules might change for storage. That's going to change for sure, but it's probably on a similar pathway to those um, FERC rules that we talked about at the top of the show. Multi-years. I did host a panel discussion with uh, Sener and CFE. CFE is basically like the market regulator and Sener is the energy secretariat. And both of them work very closely closely together on creating the rules for the wholesale market design. And they, they both of the officials said that storage is really important. Like they want to create dispatchable renewables. They know that there's going to be a lot of renewables saturating the grid. They know they need rules and they haven't quite figured it out yet, but that's a process that is imminent that will take a couple years, but we can expect to see some results and and more public talking about storage for sure. Let's um give you some nuggets of information that are maybe good for your brain to tell you something you don't know. And uh, Julia, you got the, the first go around. All right. Um, 
You may or may not know that there's a clean energy startup called Inspire based here in LA where I'm based. Um, and they recently secured a multi-year strategic partnership with Shell Energy North America. Um, Inspire is interesting. They basically started selling wrecks um, from wind projects so people could buy clean energy effectively. But now they're transitioning with Shell's help. Um, and I understand it's a substantial financial commitment on Shell's part, although they did not release the number. Um, so they're transitioning into this sort of Netflix style subscription for clean energy, where you sign up and they'll eventually deliver you a smart meter, um, LED lights, along with um, potentially solar and batteries one day. They're going to be this subscription service. You pay a flat fee to have these various resources added onto your monthly program. And so it really takes any of the monitoring or individual relationships with different vendors out of the equation. Uh, so you just sort of sign up and have a buffet of clean energy technologies, which I think will be interesting. It's sort of a, I spoke with their CEO this week. Um, he sort of described it as a continuation of David Crane at NRG's vision for the smart home, but they're taking out um, the individual elements, making it a one-stop shop. Um, early stages now, but the fact that they've got Shell backing them, I thought was pretty interesting. So uh, a company to watch. Mm, clean energy buffet. It's like the golden corral of home energy management. <laughs> That's my locals. term, not theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Can we stop calling it energy as a service or efficiency as a service and just call it an energy buffet? I like that. Sounds good. Um, I like that. <laughs> Catherine, what do you got this week? Yeah, I have a couple of things to mention. One is just to everybody know that the Solar Foundation just released the Solar Job Census. And for the first time, um, the first year, jobs have de decreased since the census was released in 2010. Um, but the long-term trend continues to show significant jobs growth, growth in a diversity of the industry. So it's interesting, worth looking at and worth digging down to see how specific states have changed, which ones are growing the most and which ones have, have lost jobs in solar. Um, the second thing I would point folks to is that Don Lippert, of the, it was called the Energy Accelerator. It's now called the Elemental Accelerator. It's based in Hawaii, but they're doing projects in California as well. They are now adding a new track called Equity and Access to their funding resources, which provides opportunities in constrained communities in California. So that should be really helpful for low-income communities. They've also added not just energy sector, but water policy, mobility, and agriculture sectors to what they're funding. And applications are due March 30th. So it would be good for folks who are interested in accessing some of this funding, which tries to address several different valleys of death, uh, is out there. The third story I wanted to point folks to, because Jigger and I were out in Ypsilanti, Michigan last week with Consumers Energy, is that consumers whose CEO used to run a coal plant Patty Poppy has announced that consumers is going to stop using coal by 2040 and have 40% renewables. They're going to cut their emissions by 80%. And over the next five years, save a billion gallons of water, reduce landfill waste 35% and protect or restore 5,000 acres of land in Michigan. So they are moving ahead. And this is based on climate change. They are internalizing as a company, climate change. Um, and while, you know, there's still a utility and they oppose this, um, ballot initiative on mandating renewables, they are still internally trying to make a difference. You pulled a jigger there. He usually brings two stories and you brought Sorry about time. that. <laughs> no, that's okay. They're interesting stories. 
the consumers one is really interesting too. And and the Sierra Club uh, Beyond Coal campaign came out with some numbers on Monday showing that there have been more coal retirements in um, you know the first forty five days or so in two thousand eighteen than the first three years of the Obama administration. Coal capacity retirements, not individual plants, but capacity. Pretty pretty extraordinary numbers. Um, and speaking of that. Speaking of the transition away from fossil fuels and some of these market dynamics that are that are calcifying, GE obviously a major wind uh, wind leader, you know, a real a real technology leader in in wind turbine manufacturing and project development and investment, um, has faced some real hard troubles recently, and part of it is because their power generation business is struggling, and they put so much investment into the gas generation business. They're one of the biggest makers of gas turbines in the world. I think maybe they are the biggest gas turbine maker in the world. And you know, around 2011, 2012, they doubled down on the smart the smart uh, gas turbine. They wanted to put um, sensors in every gas plant around the world, and you know, of course, this is important. They're extraordinarily efficient. They've built some of the the, the biggest turbines. Um, they're a real technology leader. But what they've seen is that um, their business has not just stagnated but dropped. And so they've seen a 50% drop in their stock price in the last year. And much of that is due to the struggles in the power generation business because people aren't ordering as many gas turbines. Um, luckily, you know, they have a significant renewable energy business that's evolved considerably in recent years, but not enough to make up for the thousands and thousands of jobs lost in the power generation business. It's getting restructured. They're, you know, investors are putting the pressure on them. And it's just, um, I tweeted this out right before we started recording today because I it, it captured my attention simply because a company like GE has been so forward thinking about renewables and they're even caught in the crossfire. And what happens to the biggest multinational energy companies that are banking all on fossil fuel extraction or uh, fossil fuel generation, and they don't have that exit strategy. Well, they are going to be screwed, and this sign at GE, I think, is indicative of some other problems we'll see at major companies around the world. The very first headline I wrote for GTM in 2014 was from GE, a GE executive saying, grid-scale energy storage can't compete with low-cost, quote, gas in the pipeline. Hmm. My, how the times have changed. Yeah, I remember that story. And, and you know, that was right when GE was like figuring out their Durathon business. They had the sodium sulfur battery. They made a significant investment. And then they didn't think lithium ion was the future. And to be fair, a lot of people thought that lithium ion wouldn't compete at that point. But of course, uh, three years later, four years later, we, we cost reductions have surpassed everyone's wild expectations. And lithium ion has hardened its lead as a as a battery storage technology on the grid. And so uh, GE, of course, has reinvested in lithium-ion storage, has entered partnerships with folks. And they they now see storage as a, a major piece of everything that they're doing. And these are just the first steps, folks. Like when, when a big company like this makes this, you know, these are smaller partnerships, they're one-off projects. But when you see these structural changes, investment pressure, investor pressure, um, and 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 big decisions to enter into greater partnerships, like that's a sign that there's a huge technology shift underway. Well, there's also a policy shift. So remember, a bunch of states have also taken pretty strong policy positions on storage that have helped scale and drive down cost. Indeed. Okay, we'll leave it at that. That was a fun conversation. Thanks, Julia, to, for joining us. Um, hey, folks, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, if you 
If you want to support us, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. Of course, you can give us a rating and review on any podcast app, but the um, Apple ecosystem is really important to us in helping us uh, boost up the ranking. So your help is greatly appreciated. We love your support. Give us your feedback at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Follow us on social media. Follow Julia. Follow Catherine Hamilton. Give Jigger a shout out. We're all there, and the Energy Gang is there as well. Make sure to check out The Interchange, our other long-form podcast where we talk to uh, energy leaders who are thinking about the cutting edge of energy and climate. I am Stephen Lacey with Julia Piper and Catherine Hamilton. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Catherine, good to talk to you. Happy belated. Thank you. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. <laughs>